Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories. I'm Glenn Broggett. Well, I'm here again with another great week of great wrestling talk. And this week, I do not come alone. I have uh, with me sitting in the co-host chair all the way from the great state of Texas, another a guy who is... Uh, uh, probably a lot warmer than uh, where I'm at right now. He's uh, a, a lover of pro wrestling history. He's in, delved into the pro wrestling business and promotions and training and the like. He's uh, been a veteran of the Cauliflower Alley Club. It's so uh, nice to have him back, and he says he's ready to get the rust off the chain and get back into doing radio shows uh, involving pro wrestling. A big welcome uh, to Mr. Mike McCurdy. Thank you so much, and how's that Texas weather, my friend? Uh, right now, the Texas weather is about uh, 40 degrees, so, you know, it's still warmer than where you're at, but, you know, we're having our little bit of a cold spell here, so. Okay, so you guys are, you guys are making it. Did you guys uh, see uh, much in the way of, like, snow anything uh, down there uh, yet this winter? No, 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 no snow yet, no snow. We got down to about, like, 12 degrees here last week, but no snow yet. Well, you know what, Mike? We have a guy who was probably, we talked about before we got on the mic, this guy I, I just hail because he made the smartest decision ever to move out of the Midwest in the winters to go out to the West Coast. This man is already smart in my book. But anyway, we're going to talk about his pro wrestling career that spans back, uh, wow, some 30 plus years. We're also going to talk about uh, some of the promotions, some of the people he worked with, uh, including the WWF and Herb Abrams Universal Wrestling Federation. Uh, where he had a big part uh, both on in front of the camera and behind the scenes uh, for a spell. We'll also talk about uh, his life beyond pro wrestling in the world of Hollywood. We're talking uh, not only acting, uh, stunt work, uh, and other things involved in the entertainment industry. And, uh, and we're definitely not going to overlook another big part of this man's life, some of the uh, charitable endeavors that he has been a part of. It is such a welcome to uh, have a, a real smart former Midwesterner uh, with us today. Mr., you can call them Dr. Feelgood. You could call them Mr. Outrageous, or you can also call him Mr. Al Burke. Al Burke, welcome to Rasslin' Memories, my friend. Hey, how's the weather treating you? Uh, the weather is treating me awesome. It's a little cool here, too, but much warmer than there. It's a beautiful, sunny day in California, and I've got no complaints. And yes, thank you guys for having me on board this morning. Yeah, it's uh, really nice to uh, track you down. I uh, have been watching, uh, you know, I watch a lot of YouTube, and uh, I, I, I came across some stuff uh, with the Universal Wrestling Federation and some of the stuff. It included uh, your uh, work uh, as well and, and an, on an event that I still, for the life of me, scratch my head how it was pulled off considering the location and part of the country. And before we go into some of your uh, your pro wrestling story and beyond, I want to talk about the time uh, during your time with the Universal Wrestling Federation and just how the heck Herb Abrams and company, you guys ended up booking a show at one of the, uh, the more conservative places in the country, the North Dakota State Fair in 1993. Now, Herb Abrams was uh, a little bit rock and roll compared to North Dakota and the State Fair, but you were a, a part of these sh uh, this show here. I just want to know about this because this has my, has my curiosity and has for quite some time and was uh, one of the reasons, aside from your, your other work, that I wanted to get in touch with you. Yeah, uh, North Dakota. I mean, go figure, especially for Herb Abrams. And at the time, he was working out of Beverly Hills and Malibu. and Yeah, it just didn't seem like a match, but... I know when he talked to me about it and he asked me, you know, what I thought, I'm like, you know, it was old school, going back to the state fairs, working the armories, you know, that's what we did way back in the day. I, yeah, actually, they were doing it way before I got in, obviously, but it was, you know, it was that good old feeling, and 
um, yeah, we went for it and went out there and, yeah, did some TV. It didn't turn out, I mean, didn't turn out great. Uh, production wasn't quite up to standard. Uh, I know they did finally end up with a, I think a DVD of it, but, um, I know, you know, we did have video and, um, but yeah, you know, Herb was always a wild ride, no matter where we went. <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about it because uh, uh, last week I, I had uh, well I had two the past two weeks here on the program I was able to uh, track down Steve Ray and we were the the wild thing and was talking about his life and and some of the, his work he did with the UWF. And he was also on that event, and it was also on this video that was distributed. Uh, it was on YouTube, of course. So YouTube uh, has a many, many uh, wrestling item and artifact. But he was one of the guys that was a, a central part of that uh, show up at the All Seasons Arena in Minot. There's even uh, footage of him at the fair on the back. It must have been like a four-wheeler or some sort of all-terrain vehicle uh, promoting the event. And also on one of those gyroscope things that were spinning around. And he was uh, just hamming it up. I mean, it was a, just a such an interesting, surreal experience just watching from that tape of uh, you guys coming up into the North Dakota State Fair. Yeah, Stevie was a character. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we traveled a bit together. Yeah, didn't do a whole lot, but yeah, he was up there. Um, you know, it just everywhere we go, we seem to have fun, and that was another place. And yeah, who would have thought in the middle of, you know, yucca nowhere? Um, but you know, the people are always nice up there. I mean, that part's always cool, but yeah, you know, it's not your, your Hollywood glitz and glamor, New York city, or even Vegas is nothing close, but yeah, we have, we had us some fun. <laughs> yeah. And most of it I can't tell you about. Well, <laughs> see, that's the teaser right there. And uh, yeah, there was a great lineup. I mean, there were some guys out there. You had the Killer Bees. You had Bob Orton on the card. The Warlord was on there. And uh, you had John Tolos doing the color commentary. So Herba didn't like just, you know, find some stiffs. I mean, this was a show packed with some guys that had some identifiable uh, name, you know, identifiable names and a little bit of star power attached to it. Uh, Herb always did that well. I mean, you know, the, the man had many flaws, obviously, um, but um, when he put together a show, he really tried to do it right. And, yeah, he brought in, you know, like John told us, you know, that was the first I met him. Then moving out here to California, I was able to see him, you know, a few times before he got sick. And, you know, but the people he brought in, some of them, yeah, I mean, big names, legends, um, that really made it cool. And especially back then, I mean, I was, you know, I think I was probably only in the business, maybe, you know, eight years at the time, something like that. So, um, you know, it was a big deal to me. Yeah. Working with all these, you know, huge names and, you know, guys like, you know, warlord, Terry Sapinski. Oh my God, what a monster of a man. And what a gentle giant. I mean, you know, great guy, you know, another Minnesota boy. Oh yeah, exactly. And then you had Jimmy Brunzel who was uh, up there with Brian Blair with, with the bees. Right. Yeah, no, and I've known, you know, I've known the bees. I've worked with them. Um, we go way back. I mean, I actually filled in, me and uh, one of my partners, as the Nasty Boys because they had double booked themselves, and we worked out in Key West, Florida. And that started a whole love romance with me and Key West, which I, you know, to this day still just, I can't wait to get back there every time. But, yeah, you know, we travel around, we have fun, and, you know, we meet people, and, 
you know, I'm happy like B. Brian Blair. I mean, I see Brunzi every once in a while, but B. Brian, I see him every year. We talk once in a while on the phone extra. You know, great guys, just awesome guys. I love them. Yeah, you know, and then with Brian uh, involved with the CAC as well, and uh, kind of that's what the note where uh, I, I bring in Michael McCurdy into the conversation. Uh, Mike has been to uh, plenty of uh, past uh, Cauliflower Alley uh, events, and, and Mike, I, I want to uh, have you talk a little bit about, ask some questions and talk a little bit about the Cauliflower Alley. I've actually been with Cauliflower Alley since 2006. I've missed uh, two reunions since then. I've actually had a chance to connect with Al a few times at the reunions. We've had a chance to sit down and talk. And I don't know if he actually remembers me or knows exactly who I am, but uh, oh, yeah. at one time at an indie show, he referred to me as a fat logger. So you know, <laughs> I had to remind him of that story. <laughs> and I still will. I, I think he remembers me now, Glenn. I think so. I think uh, that just rang the old bell, if you know what I mean. I've always been fortunate. You know, I get to pick on people and make fun of them. And, you know, that was part of Mr. Outrageous being a character. And, you know, you were a prime target there, my brother. <laughs> yeah, the story behind that, though, Glenn, there was an indie show he did in 1993 in Eureka, California, where I moved from. It was my hometown. And it was for a group called Bay Area Wrestling. Do you remember them, uh, Al Woody, Woody Farmer. I, I I miss Woody even today. I mean, I love that guy. But the main event of that show, it was supposed to be Shane Cody, Woody Farmer's son, and he was taking on uh, Johnny Starr, who was the champion. And uh, Shane Cody couldn't wrestle because of an injury. He had a you know bad leg, so Mister Outrageous filled his spot. But of course, you know Shane Cody was still out at ringside with his on his crutches and all that. I was sitting front row, and Shane and I got into it going back and forth outrageous comes out and he's what's going on out here and cody tells me oh this tough guy here thinks he can take me on and i'll look right at me and say i'll kick your ass you fat logger and because eureka high school those are the loggers and that's where the show was so that was the uh incident of being called a fat logger because i was <laughs> I, I was a threat to shane cody so <laughs> well maybe in your mind you were Oh, no, I was no threat to Shane Cody. I've known Shane for years, and I'm still not a threat to that man. I miss that territory. That was a lot of fun. Mike, Mike, any other memories come to mind uh, yes. of, of some of the times that you were able to encounter uh, Al as well? Uh, do you remember uh, this morning? Um, another, another one, this is kind of, this is going to pertain more, this pertains to his acting career, not uh, in ring. But sure. I met him two years ago at CAC. You know, I told him the story of the logger and, got a picture taken with him. I go home that year from Cauliflower Alley Club. And my wife's looking at the pictures I took and she's like, oh, you didn't tell me you met him. I'm looking at her and, well, how do you know who Mr. Outrageous is? I didn't know much about his acting career. She goes, you don't recognize him? I said, well, yeah, it's Mr. Outrageous, Albert. I know who he is. She's like, no, honey. She goes, your favorite movie, The Wedding Singer, you know, your Wedding Singer, what's your favorite scene in that movie? the scene on the airplane she goes do you remember the biker in the movie <laughs> yeah oh did not realize until that moment that was al burke that played the biker in uh, the wedding singer yep the large billy idol fan <laughs> yep, yeah 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 you don't talk to billy idol that way yep you got yep. 
we'll we'll get into that 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 uh, part of your career here. But I want to go back, uh, you know, because I talked about North Dakota. I want to take a little further back in time because you talked about the Midwest earlier. I want to get into a little bit more of the background information uh, for the listeners today about Al Burke and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and how you got involved too into the pro wrestling business. So give a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a bio, some bio information here on on Mister Outrageous before the outrageousness set in. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I, I was um, born and raised in Minneapolis, I mean, part of the time, because my dad uh, raced for Harley-Davidson, you know, I spent a lot of time down in southern Georgia, but, you know, Minnesota was, you know, you know, pretty much my home base, and went to high school and all that, and just south of uh, Robbinsdale, where a lot of the big boys went. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah, just, you know, your typical high school jock, um, I did not like wrestling then, I wasn't into you know, rolling around with, you know, sweaty guys is what I told the wrestling coach. <laughs> but, yeah, the football, the hockey, all that kind of stuff. And um, and I'd come out of boxing. I had done karate. And a couple of friends of mine, you know, the Terminators, you know. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. The, over. Such fixtures huh? of the uh, the uh, Eddie Sharkey uh, Pro Wrestling America days. Oh, boy, yeah, Riggs and Crow and, oh, yeah, Terminators then. Yeah. Riggs, who, you know, him and I went back much farther, um, you know, we were, you know, bikers back in the day and traveled the country on our, on our Harleys, that kind of stuff, but he took me over to Hulk Hogan's apartment, okay. back when Hulk was working, you know, his angle with Nick Bockwinkle, and Hulk told us how to get into the business, where to go to school, you know, how to train, all that kind of stuff. And it was funny because I walked away from that meeting going, no, that's really stupid. I can't, I can't be a pro wrestler. And, you know, Riggs went off, uh, John Voigt went off, uh, you know, Doug Fisher, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the three Terminators went off and just started traveling all over. And they come back and, oh, my God, we went here. We, we're going there. We're having, having a good time. We hardly even work, you know. We show up. We, we put in a half hour. We go party all night. So I listened to these stories for two years. And finally, I'm like, okay, okay, fine. So I went ahead, and uh, Riggs actually trained me. He was uh, the trainer for Edge, Eddie Sharkey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The problem at the time is Eddie did not have a ring that he was training anybody in. He was training on mats on the floor. But, you know, that's also not the right way to learn when you have to work in a ring. Um, so I, I appreciated Dan for that. He found a ring, and it was a, you know the old uh, Iron Duke, Jim Mitchell. Oh, Do you remember, you know, that rings a bell. Yeah. Yeah. And he did, uh, he did some work for, for Vern. He also did some referee stuff as, aside from the in-ring uh, wrestling. Exactly. Exactly. So he had a ring set up, so we would go there. And so Dan trained me and, you know, um, it was awesome. I uh, got into it and, you know, I kind of, and I've joked with Dan, I still talk to Dan, you know, you know, quite a bit. And I told him all three of your careers combined, I probably double that. <laughs> you know, which you oh, know, sure. I, I'm happy for somebody that didn't want to get into that business. You know, I, I'm happy for the opportunities I had. I was able to travel the world, uh, do a lot of cool things just because, you know, I became Mr. Outrageous or Dr. Feelgood. And yeah, it, it's, it was a good run, but yeah, Minnesota, that started it all. And of course, you know, kind of the wrestling capital of the world for many years and many people. 
I want. So, no, it was uh, good memories. Well, yeah, and uh, what were you talked about? You trained uh, with one of the Terminators. Uh, what were some of those early matches like? Uh, getting in there after you, you've kind of received the education, and then getting in and actually working a, a crowd. And and who are some of those guys that you did actually have the chance to work with in those early outings? And, and what can you remember of that being? Like, how you felt getting into the ring, dealing with you know not only in ring but also with the crowds, and actually it, actually in the moment instead of being in that training or watching it from from afar? Well, I mean, my very first match, I think it was uh, New Ulm, Minnesota, from what I remember, because uh, we knew people down there. And actually, Riggs ended up putting on a jobber outfit to talk me through my first match. Well, the, one of the coolest parts for me is my good friend Sherry Martell was sitting in the crowd watching me on my opening match. Oh, wow. You know, um, that I felt was, you know, true inspiration because I love Sherry. I love Sherry. Um, miss her, you know, all that. But, you know, to have her sitting there on my debut match, and, of course, you know, I, I was, I didn't have enough training at the time. I'd come out of, like I said, I did boxing, golden gloves. I was two-time Minneapolis champion. I did um, um, uh, karate then. And so, you know, I had a lot of ring presence, but I didn't understand how to work. <laughs> and I know... Um, one time I just, I plastered, you know, because I, I was one of the ninjas back then. As you know, God, who wasn't a ninja back in the <laughs> AWA days? Yeah, throw the outfit on. Get out there. Yeah, and I ended up plastering, you know, Dan Riggs with a sidekick to the chest. And I remember him laughing, you know, because, you know, thank God he's, you know, you know, all muscled up. And, you know, he's a strong man. And, you know, I think he kind of expected it. And I hit him. He goes, Jesus Christ, Ralph, this guy's a crowbar. <laughs> Later, I had to ask, you know, what's a crowbar? Well, yeah, I was a crowbar. But it was funny about, no, maybe eight, ten years after that match, I ended up talking to Dan. I go, I just wanted to let you know I've never forgotten that night. And I'm also now known as one of the softest guys in the ring. So that was just part of the ongoing education of, uh, yeah, learning, actually learning how to work in full get past uh, that you know having your trainer come in and walk you through you were getting in there and you were finding ways to not hurt your opponent and not get yourself involved in a, a potato fest yeah exactly and you know i tell people because when they ask us is you know are you all friends i go no you know there's egos there's money there's a lot of things involved but my best night of work is when i'm working with a good friend because there's no ego there's no attitude we just go out and put on a hell of a good show if it's somebody we don't like or they don't like us, that's going to be a tough night, and you're probably going to draw blood. You're going to get injured. They're going to get injured, and it's just it's a back and forth. It's not a pretty sight. And you know, I, I you know later in my career, I always tried to avoid matches like that because you know I was there to entertain. And Mr. Outrageous, like you talk, working with the crowd, I became I felt a real specialist on that. Uh, I could be in the middle of a match. But I'd be so relaxed and hearing everything that was going on, I'd hear somebody say something negative about me. <laughs> I'd tell the ref, stop. I'd jump out of the ring, walk right over to him face to face, sometimes make him stand up and go, you talking about me, boy? <laughs> but, you know, we, I would start that interaction with the fans. And, you know, I, I ended up doing it before the match, after the match. And, you know, it's something that they didn't get, especially WWF, now WWE. You don't get that. 
no, it's, it's so just... you know. I felt that was an important part to my character, but also the business. You know, get the fans involved, let them have some fun, and you know, some of the times didn't turn out so well because you know the fans sometimes they're pretty hateful, and you know, yeah, I had a few problems there, but you know, luckily, you know, nothing serious. I, I want to fast forward into uh, some of the the work, and uh, you ended up getting on uh, some WWF uh, TVs uh, and starting in 1988. Uh, I want to get into fast forwarding uh, your, from the point of you starting your career up to this uh, this uh, 1988. And how did you got find yourself involved with ended up getting in on these tapings uh, with the WWF uh, first of all, and uh, who kind of connected you in uh, to you know getting your your spot on these these TVs, working a wide array of stars uh, at that time? Yeah, um, somehow I mean I, I guess I had proven myself enough to the wrestling world where you know I had a little bit of respect. Um, not that I, you know, as a worker, but more as just, I guess, a, a person, you know, being dependable, that kind of thing. And Tom Stone, you know, Tom Rocky Stone ended up getting a hold of me and and saying, you know, I I need uh, a booker in Minneapolis area, book out through through all of Minnesota. And uh, so it was really, you know, Tom that brought me in, and uh, we started uh, booking. I remember one time, I think I had like 25 guys I had to bring to a taping. I think we rented four or five vans. Um, but, yeah, those are, you know, the good old memories. I mean, I remember I always tried to include Todd Becker, Todd and I. Todd was just a sure. guest on yours a, a few few weeks back. And, you know, Todd and I still talk, you know, maybe once once a week, you know, you know, twice a month, whatever. You know, I keep track of his kids. He keeps track of mine, you know. Um, we follow each other's family. Uh, Todd and I, I mean, we were in North Dakota the other. We actually roomed on that tour. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that, Todd that definitely has uh, some good memories of, of that one as well and uh, working and, and hanging out with you, too. Yeah, no, and, you know, it's, you know, it becomes a family for the most part, you know, and um, stuff like that, people like that, you know, just make the whole memory of the my wrestling, you know, history, if you want to call it that, um, just really nice. Yeah, you mentioned Tom Rocky Stone, and also I was just looking at some of the guys that you did uh, work the TVs with, uh, you know, in tags. I mean, you talk about Tom Stone, and also amongst that group, uh, there was guys, like you mentioned Todd Becker. Another guy who I've had on twice on the program was Chris Curtis, and I, I see uh, that you worked uh, a match with, uh, uh, well, they were the Bushwhackers then, they were formerly the Sheep Herders. Uh, you, you worked some tags, uh, one of them with uh, Chris Curtis. So I want to talk about working with Chris and also uh, the Bushwhackers. I mean, those were guys... Around the time that they got their promotion, they went from bloodthirsty, barbed wire, cut-up uh, New Zealanders to fun-loving Kiwis. I mean, that, that had to have been yeah. a trip working in the ring with Luke and Butch. Well, it was so funny because um, I'll go with the Bushwhackers first. Um, they're, they're sitting talking to you through the whole match. And it's not the guy that you're in the ring with. It's the other guy outside the ring. And they're making jokes. And, they're, and it, was, <laughs> it was, I was trying to keep from laughing. It was so hysterical and so much fun. And I wish I would have got to work with them more because, it, you know, it was really a, a fun night. All these guys, you know, Curtis included, I mean, fun times, traveling all over. Um, just, you know, these road trips. I mean, Todd and I and many of my other friends still talk about the road trips we had. And how much fun we had, and you know, it was not like we got in trouble, which we did a few times. But well, it's only natural, um, right? But it was just—it was just fun hanging out together and traveling, and we'd be on you know a two or three day tour, which wasn't much back then. 
But, you know, the cool part was it wasn't like the old 5 all go slow. Our expenses were covered, our vehicles, our hotels. You know, we got fed, you know, the day of tapings, you know, a nice buffet. And, you know, it was just one of those things. It was it was really good times. Mm-hmm. And you work, I want to talk about some of the stars you, you did get a chance to work with too, aside from the Bushwhackers, while we're talking a little bit about your your work off and on with the WWF. Uh, a recent shot that you shared on, on your page online on Facebook was you caught in the grip of uh, one big John stud. Now, I know the match uh, wasn't a Broadway, but what was it like working with John Minton? I mean, this was uh, one of those big, larger-than-life characters that was part of that early rock and wrestling thing of the mid-80s and then ended up returning back to the Federation around 1989. Yeah, John, I mean, uh, a true monster of a man. Oh, my God, was he big. I did not realize how strong he was. I started off the match. I mean, I thought, you know, he's big. I'm going to get in a couple licks quick. And so, you know, I I hit him twice, jumped up on the rope, got to the second, turned around, and he was right there, grabbed me by the throat. He took me off the ropes with one arm and held me. I'm like 240 at the time. He slowly started losing me because of my weight, picked, uh-huh. you know, put his other hand under my ass and just threw me into the turnbuckle. I mean, I took a short rib there, you know, I took a little bit of air, and I'm like, holy crap, is this man strong? I had no idea. Um, but no, great guy, um, another sad death in our, you know, our long, long list of, you know, dearly departed. But no, I was very honored to work with guys like that, you know, the ultimate warrior, stiff as that. SOB was, <laughs> but, you know, but like Andre, you know, I stepped in the ring twice with Andre and, um, first, you know, both times colossal connection. First time they weren't tag team champions in the WWF the next time they were. So, you know, uh, what an honor. I mean, you know, I laugh at the kids nowadays, you know, it's like, you don't understand what we got to go through back then. We got to work with the biggest legends in the whole world. And, you know, for that, I'm eternally grateful. I, I got to ask you, too. I mean, not only Andre and yeah, this man may not have been big uh, as far as like in height stature, but the other half of the colossal connection was just as big and badass in his own right. Uh, Haku. Yeah, I never got to personally work against Haku other than in the tag match. Yeah, you know, he was one of those that you, you know, the word was out. If anybody's legitimately badass. He is one of them. Don't ever screw with that man. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, know, and you know, stories like that always stuck with me. I mean, I'm, I'm very good friends with like Paul Orndorff and it turns out, you know, Paul, same thing, not a big man, you know, but you know, some of his stories and Paul and I have got to hang out many times. We did many tours together, but you find out these stories when, you know, like Paul takes on, you know, um, Tony Atlas, you know, and, you know, makes Tony submit, <laughs> You know, that's some badass boys out there. And No, you always learn, you know, never underestimate anybody and basically know your place. You know, don't try to climb the ladder because, you, you know, you, you got big cojones because most of the time you're going to get hurt. But it was such a great education you got, too. I mean, to be able to not only get the TV coverage, but you, you were working through those years uh, off and on from 88 to 93, uh, these these WWE shows or WWF shows at the time, with just such a who's who. I mean, we talked about some of the big heavyweights, but you also got to work with bona fide in-ring legends like, you know, Dusty Rhodes. Uh, we're talking about the Kerry Von Erich, the Texas Tornado, uh, some guys, you know, that aren't with us anymore, uh, and like and Hercules Hernandez and... Uh, yeah. You know, these guys, I mean, and 
Wow. I mean, and you even got to work. Uh, I mean, you took a Superfly splash. You took a DDT from Jake. I mean, how many other people even nowadays, again, these kids could probably sit under your learning tree and just uh, talk about these, these tapings and how you were just in such a good position to, to work with these guys and make them shine. Yeah. Um, a quick story about Superfly. I got to work with him twice, uh, you know, WWF tapings. The first time I got the Superfly at the end, I saw stars. I saw bubbles. I saw little birdies flying around. I swore he landed on my head. I mean, I, I thought I'd been damn near knocked out. And I'm out there trying to clear my head outside, and the guys in the TV van are laughing at me because they can see me, and they go, what's wrong? And I go, God damn, he, he, he had to hit me in the head. And they go, no, he didn't. They brought me in the van, replayed it, and showed me. It was strictly chest to chest. That's the type of collision, which most people don't realize. And then a couple months later, I got my chance to work with, you know, Jimmy again, and I had you know, hit the gym even harder and worked, and when he hit me, no stars, no bubbles, I'm like, yeah! But then I remember during the match, all of a sudden I saw his face turn, and I'm like, oh, crap, I pissed him off. He's going to kill me. He wound up to hit me, and he was as light as a feather. Uh, it was all show, and I'm like, damn, you are good. But, yeah, guys like that, Dusty, I loved working with Dusty. Um, you know, I'm Fortunately, another one that's passed, but, you know, what a legend. Yeah, so I'm very fortunate. I think I had, like, 30 TV matches with uh, WWF, and um, I'm just, you know, I'm thrilled to death, even today, that, that I had that opportunity to work with, like you said, these legends. It's awesome. Yeah, and you, it's in the, I mean, not only the singles, but the tag, the tag teams I'm looking at you when I was researching for this interview. I, I mean, you got to, to work with the Steiners, the Nasty Boys, the Heart Foundation, just to, to name a couple of these, these big tag teams. I mean, and you got these guys when they were in their prime tag team years, too. So you got some oh, young yeah. and hungry guys. You got these, you know, the Heart Foundation, what a solid team, the Rockers, the High Flyers. And then you got the guys that sometimes the matches look like the opponents were in a car accident, the Steiner brothers. I mean, good Lord, what a, what a variance of styles you got to work in the ring with. Very, very fortunate. Uh, the Road Warriors, um, yeah, guys like that. Um, you know, I, I forget who it was. Uh, it might have been the, might have been the Steiners. Um, I was their first match coming to WWF when they moved over. So they, you know, of course, you know, they've got something to prove to the world, you know, that they're worthy to be there. You know, I mean, it wasn't a horrible night. It, it was a snug night, as we call it. Um, <laughs> when they laid their stuff in, it was solid. But luckily, I was in shape, and you know, I you know never complain. And um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a brutal night. Not as bad as Warrior. I mean, the funny part is, I faced Big John Stud one night, and the next night I faced Warrior. I was in bed for a week after that. I was I was so hurt. <laughs> Oh, just, just, you know, but it, you know, it's what we do. You know, it's, it's a life we live and people laugh at us that don't understand our business. It's like, why would you do that? And I, cause we love it. We're talking with uh, Al Burke, and and now we're going to move now from the uh, WWF, where you worked some some major major stars uh, worked with 
to, uh, again, we touched on it very early on in our interview here as kind of our opening salvo. Uh, we talked about uh, the Universal Wrestling Federation and Herb Abrams and how they booked the big show that you were part of at the North Dakota State Fair in 1993. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about how you, you came and crossed paths with Herb Abrams. Uh, again, I, I just talked with Steve Ray, and he talked about his relationship with Herb and just what a, a fascinating person. He's not exactly a made-for-prime-time uh, player type of guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, through the years, there's been some stuff that's been said about Herb and some things that it may have been stretched or may have been not as stretched as far as it should be. But I want to talk about how you got into the wonderful world of Herb Abrams, a, a Beverly Hills guy who got into the wrestling business. Well, you know, once I moved to California here and actually first step is I had gone to the AWA and Eric Bischoff was in the office and Eric and I knew each other from our karate days. And I says, you know, I've got all these years in. I think I'm ready for a push. He goes, sorry, we're closing the doors next month. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, that was, you know, that, that little thing. And a month later, I got Herb's personal phone number. And I called him up and I says, told him who I was. And he goes, yeah, I heard of you. What do you want? I go, we need to talk. I'm, you know, I want to work for you. So we sat down. And one thing I never did is take shit from Herb. And, you know, a couple times I go, you know, don't be a schmuck. And he looked at me and go, no, don't worry. I understand what a schmuck is. And I started talking to him in Yiddish. And I'm not Jewish, but, you know, and he looked at me and he kind of smiled. And I think he liked the fact that, you know, I wasn't going to take crap from him. And I never did. And he hired me and we did the North Dakota show. And pretty soon we're working on the MGM Grand Show, which has, you know, one whole story behind it, which we won't get into now. And I'm surprised they didn't kill her, but... um, but he, and he ended up, you know, moving me into the office, and I became his confidant. We traveled to Israel together on tour. Um, you know, a lot of fun. You know, um, Dr. Death Steve Williams and I were invited with Herb to go to Maui. Um, that was about a month before, you know, Herb had his uh, incident in New York where he basically, you know, his, his heart stopped, and um, he basically killed himself um, just out of fear. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, it was a ride that I'll never forget. I'm still mad at Herb because that man, he could do anything he wanted. He could go out and raise a half a million dollars on a weekend for his next show. I mean, he had the gift of gab. Um, he just knew how, to, he knew how to work people. If he would have just stayed off of drugs, he would, he would be, you know, still you know, one of the biggest promotions in the world. I mean, it's tough to beat Vince, but he'd be, you know, he'd be an EV very easy second place to that yeah and it's just a shame that uh, again some of his antics you know really kind of overshadow just how uh, really uh, an aggressive uh, guy who wanted to get the best into the wrestling business who had that passion for business and and just what he really did bring to the table because when he opened up those tapings initially and, and through the run of the uwf there were a lot of guys that passed through that were uh i mean you look at the, alone at some of the cards and the pay-per-views and tv tapings there was some big star quality out there. I mean, you had guys, you know, like Terry Gordy, Paula Orndorff was on these uh, these events through the years. You had Colonel De Beers. You had uh, Bob Backlund, Mick Foley when he was Cactus Jack, Bam Bam Bigelow. You even had freaking Bruno Sammartino for a spell. So, I mean, this was a guy that wasn't messing around. But he even had Andre the Giant. Amazing. 
Did you know that? No, please tell a little story about how he was got uh, Andre. I don't know. I wasn't with him then, but I had seen things that Andre had come in for one of his tapings even. No, yo, Herb, Herb pulled out all the stops trying to, you know, trying to play the game. And, you know, he did a good job. He just, you know, he had too many demons in his closet. But, no, you're right. He brought in some huge, huge names in our business. Yeah, and he also, uh, you know, was able to secure, I mean, there was they were on TV. I mean, the Sports Channel, a, a USA deal was, was a big one for a while. And even uh, to the day with, uh, you know, with UWF, you could see it, you know, five, ten years ago, even nowadays, on ESPN Classic. I had lined up a lot of that personally. Um, uh-huh. Todd Okerlin, Mean Gene's son, was the distributor of uh, UWF material for me. Um, I haven't talked to Todd in a while. I see Mean Gene, but um, yeah, I've got to give Todd a call. You know, it's it was one of those things. Once Herb died, I mean, even my wrestling tights that I had made as Doctor Feelgood, uh, those pretty much went into retirement. I mean, I was very saddened by his death and. Um, yeah, a lot of that I just put away, and I've got, you know, I'm I was in charge of all of all of the the footage. I still have all of the footage. What 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 are what were the plans? I mean, you talked with with Todd Okerlund and stuff. Another guy that I know that's involved uh, in the distribution too was uh, Polish Joe Chupek as well uh, from from Minnesota. Yeah, I never worked with him. I think Todd and him might have worked together. Um, but no, I I happened to meet Todd. I had lined up with a guy out here and. Um, in Santa Monica, and, and we worked together, and you know, unfortunately, he became a uh, a not a trustworthy person. Um, whole another story. But I ended up calling Todd personally then, and and talking to him, explaining who I was, and gave him basically you know the letters from Herb that put me in charge of you know all West Coast operations for UWF, and um, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, I think I'm one of those you know. Um, trustworthy people. Um, one thing Riggs told me in the very beginning, and, I, and to this day, I, I live by this, your word is worth gold until you break it once. Then it's never worth anything again. And so I've always tried to live by that and make sure, you know, what I say is what I do. And, then, you know, I've had a few incidences where, like, I had to go to a promoter and say, hey, I just got booked in Japan, but I know I'm booked for you. What can I do to be released? You know, not screwing them over, not, you know, just going. And I made sure, you know, stuff like that. So you try to, <clears throat> excuse me, try to be an honest, trustworthy person, and it'll follow you through your whole career. So Herb wasn't quite that way, though. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk how you par- you parlayed. You went from pro wrestling, how you got into the world of, of Hollywood and the world of acting and, and eventually stunt work. How did that door open up for you and uh, lead to... Uh, some big roles, including the one that uh, Mike uh, definitely remembers now uh, in the uh, the Wedding Singer. But how did the, that that door get opened up for you? I, I get a phone call from Carl Lauer. He was the promoter out here on the West Coast for many many years, and he still is back in the Midwest now, where he's moved back. But he calls me up, and I, I'd done a couple of charities with like P- Professor Tanaka and. Budokan and stuff, we went off and, you know, did some things. So Carl was aware of me, and he calls me up and says, I got this movie part I want you to read for. All you have to do is beat up, kidnap, and kill Mexicans in East L.A. I'm like, that's not a problem. <laughs> Where do I sign up for this? <laughs> and I ended up going in, and, we, you know, the movie I was working with, uh, the, the Lucha Libre guy. So we had some great fights. It was awesome. And that was my start. And um, in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, Carl always gave me crap. He says, you know, I never paid him back for that, you know, getting him, him giving me my break. 
Well, I happened to get a one-penny residual check, so I had it framed, and I presented it to Carl one year at the CAC. I go, don't spend it all in one place, and now we're even. What's well, a movie none of us ever got paid for, even as investors, you know, we lost money, but, you know, welcome to Hollywood. But that was my start in uh, Hollywood, you know, working as an actor, and, you know, one of my dreams always was, you know, I wanted to be known as a Hollywood stuntman, and I thought, if I could just do one, I'd be happy. Well, I've had dozens and dozens. I do tons of driving. You know, I'm a precision driver along with a stunt driver. Um, you know, the difference being precision, you never touch. Stunts, you, you kiss as we call it. You know, you'll kiss a door handle. You'll kiss your bumpers, your fenders. Um, you can roll them over. Uh, you break your tires loose. There's your difference. But it was just, it was such an intriguing world to me. And so, you know, that's what I did. I went off and got an agent and, you know, started getting work. And just like the wrestling world, you learn how the business works and how you can make it work for you. And I finally did that. Now, um, every year I've averaged approximately 100 jobs a year, which is, you know, basically two jobs every week, which I can live on, I can have fun with. So that's kind of my goal. And I'm just happy with that and keep moving forward and having fun. And I want to mention another guy who, from the pro wrestling world and uh, also just one tough son of a gun that uh, crossed paths in your life, uh, Judo Gene LaBelle. Yes. What a great guy. Um, I told my dad years ago, I go, I think Judo, uh, Judo Gene was about, you know, 80, 80-something at the time, low 80s. I told my dad, in my prime, when I was the biggest, baddest, toughest I ever have been, he would have made me cry like a little schoolgirl within seconds. I go, he is that legitimately badass. But same thing, nice guy, no attitude. Uh, you know, I've, I can thank God I've never been choked out by him. He's never, you know, he's never gotten aggressive with me. Um, yeah, he's a great guy. I mean, I love him. Um, you know, another great run in Hollywood. I think he's got, you know, like 400 credits in Hollywood. I mean, well, you know. He's done well. He's done well. Yeah, yeah. I want to bring Mike back in. Uh, Mike, uh, the name Carl Lauer comes up, and I, I know that uh, gets your antennae up, uh, being a, a vet of the Cauliflower Alley Club. Do uh, you want to talk a little bit? Because we mentioned a little bit about that wedding singer stuff, too, but I just uh, I had to mention that uh, the name Carl Lauer back to you because I know that, that'll get you going a little bit. Well, Carl's a great guy. Um, I've, like I said, known him since 2006 and all that, and I was around when... Um, Al gave him the, the check for the penny framed and all that. So <laughs> I, I, I remember all that, but um, I do want to touch on something. You know, we are talking your Hollywood career and the, uh, the wedding singer. You heard my story a little bit ago, but um, that scene. And if anybody who's watched the movie, we all know the scene. It's where, you know, Adam Sandler wins the girl at the end of the film, but your part is in my opinion, I think a lot of other people, that line and what you do is kind of an iconic part of that scene. How did you get to audition for that and get that part? And did you realize that at that time that was going to be kind of one of those scenes and one of those memories that people are going to take from that movie? Um, when I first got the audition, I got it through one of my agents at the time. And I went in and read. And um, um, I just read with the casting director and, you know, um, she was saying, go ahead and, you know, encroach my territory, which means I could get in her face because that was the kind of character it was. And we didn't have a card or anything, but I actually had a couple of lines in that. I knock him to the ground, and then I also um, drag him off to the bathroom. 
um, which turned out we couldn't shoot. But anyways, we get to that, and the girl says, that's a great job. You know, I loved it. That's the good news. Bad news, I need to see you back here in four hours for the director. Okay. So I did that. And, um, you know, I thought I had a you know, pretty dang good audition. And the director was even, no, get in my face, touch me. And I was, I basically, we were really nose to nose. Our noses were touching. And I was like, don't you talk to Billy Idol that way. And um, it was like a month later. I think it was actually 28 days later. I get a call. Oh, you booked the job. I'm like, what job? You know, I haven't been out for anything for a while. Oh, the wedding singer. That night, I get special deliveried the script. Now, at the time, the part I was reading for was the, was the big fan, but it was uh, David Lee Roth. So I was excited. You know, love the song. You know, love the band, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I get the script, and it switched to Billy Idol. I'm like, oh, wow. I go, I guess that makes sense. So I was very happy with that. Um, showed up. Everybody was awesome. Uh, one of the coolest nights of my whole life was the rap party. When we were all done, they threw a party for us. Billy Idol brought his whole band and gave us a private concert for over an hour. Billy, uh, Billy let Adam Sandler play lead guitar on everything. I had no idea Adam was that good. So it was, you know, I mean, I was standing, there was nobody in front of me. I could reach out and touch the speakers. That's how close I was to them. What an awesome night. And, you know, I was thinking, oh, my God, I've made it. You know, I'm, I'm going to get these every week. Well, that didn't quite happen. In fact, I've never had a party like that since. But, no, one of those cool memories, and I'm very thankful I was given the opportunity to do that. And, yeah, it's kind of become that iconic phrase. You know, it's one of those um, – I've seen a couple of different websites where it's, you know, that's up there with, you know, the best one-liners in history. So I'm kind of proud of that. I mean, you know, it had nothing to do with me other than I delivered the line and I was the character in there. And, but yeah, it's uh, it's fun. And the cool part is I'm still getting, getting paid money for it. And the bottom line, that's what that's what we all want is, is the residual check. But um, another thing in your acting career, I'll touch on this a little bit. People, I'm sure, might realize you've done uh, music videos um, with uh, LMFAO who a few years back was kind of one of the pot bands at the time. And, you know, their videos are fairly comical and, you know, entertaining and all that. But how did you, was that just another case of just went in for an audition? But what was it like working with, uh, on the music videos? Um, I actually auditioned for Red Foo. I, I remember I was standing there, they walk us in and there was a line of us. I think there were either four or five of the different characters. You know, you usually never go in with the same character. So I wouldn't go in with another cop. And Red Foo's at the table, and he's, you know, he's got all, the, all of our pictures. Not, mine wasn't there yet because I had an audition, but I was standing there waiting. He goes, okay, this is our cop. And he looks up and goes, oh, wait, that's our cop. So, I, you know, I had a good feeling, but you, you never know in Hollywood. But, yeah, they hired me, and then they wanted my um, junior partner in the scene. They glued on a mustache that, you know, resembled mine. And uh, I actually dressed him. I brought one of my uniforms, but they're like, no, no, he's not worthy of having the full uniform like you. He's, he's like the rookie. So we dialed him down, but yeah, it was cool. I worked two nights on that. Like, even like the wrestling, you know, I made a lot of cool friends after that shoot. Um, very colorful video. In fact, I used it as uh, one of my shots on, uh, fa on my Facebook page because it is, you know, cool and, 
yeah, I come in, I go to arrest uh, Red Foo, and he turns around waiting for me to cuff him, and we sneak into the party. It's, we're there to party. Um, going back to the wrestling um, just for a minute, you mentioned a couple things when you were talking. Um, you said that some of the kids nowadays wouldn't understand, you know, or know anything about the legends you got to work with. And you talked about your training in the ring and you worked on mats. I work with a, a training school and I help them to train and we have the mats. So there are still schools that do the mats. And we try to instill some of the history into our kids and let them know, Hey, you know, about these people and kind of lay down some of the groundwork for them. So they kind of know where it all came from. But what's your take and your opinion now on the current scene? Cause there's wrestling schools. I mean, you can, throw like a rock like five feet and hit a wrestling school and a lot of areas you can find little indie federations everywhere for kids to work and sometimes you know they may not be ready to be in that ring yet because the school may not be as you know accredited when you were training you know you actually had to know people and you had to be recommended you it was harder to find a school back then but what is your take now on just the current training and indie scene yeah, you're very correct. Um, none of us, none of us old schoolers, are happy with where any of our business has gone. Um, yeah, wrestling. Anybody, you know, anybody can train anybody, and now they're officially a pro wrestler. No, um, it's it's sad. I mean, I um, I ended up uh, locally here. I heard about a backyard wrestling show, and I knew the kid because my daughter went to school with him. So I went to the show. And I talked to him. I'm like, you guys are crazy. And he had done a barbed wire match, and he was sitting there all disappointed. He goes, I thought I would be uh, bloodier. I'm like, that's not the point, dude. He goes, oh, no, I wanted to be. I'm like, no, no, you're missing the point. So I steered him to a wrestling school. He ended up going, but, you know, the young, young guns of today, he ended up breaking his neck. I mean, he wasn't paralyzed, but he could never work again. I remember talking to him about that. I'm like, how did that work for you? I go, I'm still working. At the time I had, you know, I was in my, you know, early 20s for years. I'm like, I've been doing this for a long time and I still get to do it because I'm smart. Yeah, but it was, it was so much fun and I had to do this move. I go, and that move cost you your whole career. But, you know, the kids nowadays just don't get that. I remember Riggs had told me uh, during my training, he goes, you go to the second rope, you could hurt yourself. You go to the top rope, you could cripple yourself. What do you want to do? And, you know, all these things, you know, I mean, you know, Dan was old school and, you know, old school wrestling and you learn to learn to chain, you know, you, you learn to put, you know, holes on. And, um, yeah, nowadays it's like, how many high spots can I get in? And, you know, okay, now it's your turn to do your 20 high spots. I'll come back with my next 20 and, you know, there's no story. There's no anything. So that part is is sad, I think, to most all of us. But, you know, they're not listening to us. They've got their own ideas. And like I said, anybody can open a promotion. Um, you know, anybody can buy a ring now. Yeah, it's uh, our, our business has changed. Um, you know, many of us veterans, if you want to call us that, you know, old timers, you know, we talk about it from time to time, and, you know, sometimes we'll tell the kids, I'm like, you guys are going about it all wrong. And, you know, me, I mean, I've, I was able to get over 30 years in the ring actual wrestling. Um, yeah, I had some injuries and, you know, and stuff like that, but, you know, you have to be smart. It is a work, and we were talking earlier, you know, when you get with somebody you don't like, 
you know, you you may you know you try not to permanently hurt somebody because that's the way they make their living. They pay their bills, they feed their family, whatever. So you don't try to intentionally go out and and cripple them. But you know, putting in a little sting here and there never hurts. Do you watch any of the current product, either indie or you know the national what's on TV? None of it. Not one minute. Just something you're not interested in anymore. As a as a former worker, um, no, unfortunately not. Um, I mean, every once in a while, like Sin Bodie from uh, Freak Show Wrestling will want me to do a special appearance, and mostly I come in and you know take a big monster bump off of one of their guys because I I can still do the big monster choke slam and um, things like that. But no, I realize you know I'm I'm I've moved beyond that. It's not for me. But you know we're just not happy with what we see happening out there and. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got people that are heading to the big WWE event down in New Orleans, whatever that is. And I was invited. I'm like, hell no, I'm not going to that. I did take my daughter about 10 years ago because she was a super fan. And I went and watched a, a Raw and whatever else, you know, TV taping. And I sat there and just like, you know, it just isn't like it used to be. And you know that that's that's my problem now because everybody's moved beyond me and that's okay. I I can live by mine and I hope they can live by theirs. I want to just before we go here because uh, we got a little bit of time left. Timekeepers looking at me, giving me the eye. I want to talk about some of non, the non wrestling, the non acting. I want to talk about some of the charitable stuff that you've been a part of here in in recent years. I want to talk about some of the charities that you were involved with. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, I've done many charities. The main one's been Special Olympics. I've traveled all over for them. I've I've done four of their World Games. Um, so you know, I'm pretty proud of that. Made a lot of friends out of the Special Olympians. And when you realize the Special Olympians are some of pro wrestling's biggest fans, um, I saw the real attraction there when I first got into the business. So that's been one. I've been called in to do three Make a Wishes, and two out of the three died within days of my visit. Uh, that's very tough. I, I hate to get that call. I mean, I, I don't even want to answer the phone, but of course I do because that's the kind of person I am. And I was given the uh, Jason Sanderson Humanitarian Award a few years back here because of all that I'd done. Jason didn't even realize everything, you know, or much of what I'd done because I don't make it public. I'm, you know, that's not the the Mr. Outrageous, let's get in front of the camera press. That's just me and whoever I'm happening happening to visit um, yeah, you know, I've done burn units, I've done Shriners hospitals. I mean, this stuff is, it's tough. It's got, it tears your heart out. Um, but you know, the hardest part, like I said, when I have these kids, you know, dying, um, that's just not easy. I mean, but you know, welcome to life is death. And, you know, I've had to adjust to that, but no, I, I try to do charities as my way to pay back. Um, I'm always happy to do that. And I think it's a big part of uh, becoming a whole person is by, you know, giving to somebody without ever wanting anything in return. What do you got cooking here uh, in your uh, not-too-distant future? Have you got any uh, work that you've lined up as far as uh, stunt work or acting or videos and the like? Well, the biggest thing I have right now, I've been working on it for about a year now, is the Machine Gun Preacher 2 movie. Um, anybody who saw the first one, Gerard Butler played Sam Childers, who is the real machine gun preacher. Well, I'm, I'm a personal friend of Sam's. 
and I have a starring role with Gerard if we can all get our schedules together in the second part of that series. Um, I did go to Africa a couple of years ago. I directed a movie over there in Uganda. Uh, it's currently we just finished it a couple of months back, so now it's you know ready to get distributed. It'll be shown in theaters over there. So you know those are the things. I mean, I'm now putting that out there because I've got to go uh, to film festivals promoting it. Um, I'm also up for a TV series. Uh, I should find out the end of this month uh, if we get to shoot the pilot. We've already shot photos. Uh, it's kind of a Mad Max type of uh, character. I mean, I have a Mad Max type of bike. Uh, my front fender has four real saw blades welded to it. Oh, so cool. Man. They're still kind of sharp. They will take your skin. They will you know, rip your clothes. I mean, they're they're sharp enough for all that. So it's a pretty radical bike, and I don't ride it a lot. It's more for the movies. But, you know, it's a fun, cool thing that Mr. Outrageous gets to do. Mm-hmm. And where do you went on social media if people want to, uh, you know, take a take a glimpse into the life of what Mr. Outrageous is up to? Mr. Outrageous actually has his own Facebook page. Um, usually the other, um, my personal page is more for people that I have worked with. I normally don't take fans on that, but Mr. Outrageous page we can. From there, you know, I, I'm, I leave my pages open to the public. I'm not hiding from anybody so that they could go to my page. I usually, I think I have almost 700 people on my, you know, want to be friends list that are waiting right now. <laughs> um, like I said, I don't take fans. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be difficult or be an ass or be stuck up. Uh, it's just, you know, I try to keep that low because these are people that I really know and I, I have worked with. Uh, but yeah, if they want to go to Mr. Outrageous, uh, Mr. Outrageous still has a MySpace page. I just talked to somebody yesterday about that. MySpace is still alive, but because of the bands, and I do, I've done over 200 music videos. So these bands are all over MySpace because that's still one of their main ways to communicate all over the world. And I've got like 300,000 friends on there. Um, you know, it's it's not a real active like you know my Facebook stuff. Um, I don't do anything else. Um, you know, I just don't have the time. I I love working, and I and I you know I try not to be a you know stuck at my computer. Um, you know, if you try to talk to me on there, usually I can't because I don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Well, before we head out, I want to uh, shift it back over to Mike McCurdy. Mike, do you have uh, uh, one more question here before we uh, part ways with our guest today, Mr. Alberk? Um, yeah, dude, this is a question. Um, I hosted a podcast for about two and a half years. And this is a question I always like to ask a lot of the veterans, the ones that have been in this for a while, but looking back on your career and looking forward, what is something you would like people to remember you most for as far as your in-ring career? I guess um, that I was entertaining. You know, I, I was playing a bigger-than-life character. Um, Mr. Outrageous could do anything, could wear anything. I mean, that was the whole character I developed with that. But just that I was fun and entertaining. I mean, don't take it too seriously. Um, if I picked on you and if I called you a stinking fat logger, too bad. Get over it. <laughs> I'm but still no, hurt by that. <laughs> no, you're not. Shut up. We'll talk in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you, you know, it's all the character. It's not me. I mean, I've, I've heard things that I've apparently said before um, that I feel bad about because I didn't mean it the way it was taken. I'm, I... 
um, you know, I will tease you like there uh, in front of God and everybody, but it's not really personal. It's part of the show, and, you know, I want everybody to know, please believe that, because I really try not to ever be a, uh, a mean, evil person. So I, I guess that's the biggest thing. Well, thank you so much uh, for the conversation uh, on this uh, day, uh, Mr. Al Burke. It was a pleasure, and boy, it, it just, this hour went so fast. The timekeeper, again, has to tell me i got to follow the rules. But anytime you uh, find yourself available to talk about some of the, your projects or whatever you're working on, you always have uh, a place here at Rasslin' Memories. And I, I want to thank you as well as Mike, uh, on behalf of Mike, uh, for, for uh, stopping by today. It, it was a real honor. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, time flew by. I mean, yeah, you know, like I said, walking down memory lane is always awesome because they're great memories. And thank you for for having me on your show. Mm, You're very, very welcome. For Al Burke and Mike McCurdy, I'm Glenn Broggett. This is Rasslin' Memories.